is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. And this episode, we will be talking about the third of the so-called package films, which is also nicknamed The Poor Man's Fantasia. And that is the lost Disney animated film, Make My Music. Except it's not lost at all. It's just weirdly kind of ignored, I guess. So as of this recording, Make My Music is the only film in the Disney animated canon that is not available on Disney+. Plus. We watched it for this episode because as someone who keeps track of these things, when it was released on DVD, I've actually bought this movie twice and had not watched it before recording this podcast. But in the lead up to doing the conception for this podcast, this was the first movie where I was like, oh, this is going to take some effort to track down. For those who are my age or probably even a little older, the Disney Movie Club is reminiscent of the Columbia Record Club, where... They have this amazing deal where when you join, you get four Blu-rays for a dollar each or five or whatever the, the thing is. And then you are obligated to buy a few movies at full price at some point over the next year or two years, whatever whatever the parameters of the, the, the membership is. But one of the good things they do with this club is they actually do exclusive releases that don't get released to like Target and Best Buy and Walmart and Amazon for some of their movies. So there's a Blu-ray of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Blu-ray of a Goofy movie. So there's there's a bunch of these that are club exclusives where they only make physical copies for those who are participating in this pyramid scheme of Disney to sell more physical copies of their movies. But Make My Music and Melody Time are the only two in the animated canon that are sort of part of that exclusivity thing. And so at the time when I was start starting to prep this podcast, they had released it on DVD. And I was like, well, DVD is better than not seeing this movie and not having it available. And then in November of 2021, this is how long I've been thinking about doing this podcast. In November of 2021, they announced that it was coming to Blu-ray as again as a club exclusive. But this time it was going to be fully uncut and uncensored. And then when the me and the 25 other people who were really excited about this release got it home and went to play, it, it's exactly the same version that had been censored before, just in high definition. So it is still censored, which we will talk about much later in terms of, or not much later, we'll talk about it fairly soon in terms of what got cut from this movie. But this is the only one that's hard to track down. And it's also... Song of the South, which we will talk about on our next episode, is notorious enough that it is pretty widely available on, I should say, grayer areas of the internet. Whereas I'm not even sure this is truly even that readily available because it's just not even talked about. Like, Megan, were you aware that this movie even existed before looking at the list of things we had to cover for this podcast? 
I think I've heard the phrase before, and I am aware of some of the shorts. Okay. But I, I don't think other than that, I knew this movie was a thing. I think I had only known of two of these. Like, I kind of knew what they were going to be about before I actually sat down to watch this. I watched it twice for this episode because I hadn't seen it before. And the edited version is like an hour, seven minutes. And then the short that's cut is like seven or eight minutes, I think. So it's a pretty quick watch, which is always helpful. <laughs> One of the good things about the show is that it's going to be a long time before we cover a movie that is significantly over two hours. Conception-wise, like I said in the intro, The Poor Man's Fantasia. And this is kind of a follow-up to what we talked about in the Fantasia episode, where Walt really sort of wanted to bring Fantasia out for the, like the Fantasia 1941 season version, where you know they might leave in Sorcerer's Apprentice, but they would swap in and swap out different segments to sort of refresh it and get people coming back to Fantasia over and over again. And what happened instead is that they basically pulled together 10 shorts. These are all, to one degree or another, based around music. <laughs> I'll say, to give it the, the benefit of the doubt, and then release that as a feature film. So one of the things that I think is kind of interesting here is that the through line that we were kind of pleased with in The Three Caballeros is definitely non-existent in this movie. Like you said, there is a through line to some extent of music, but how they do music is completely different in basically every single segment. So this is definitely kind of a weird outlier it doesn't even have as much consistency as i would say fantasia does because it's supposedly focused around popular music but then has one classical music that was maybe kind of sort of supposed to be in fantasia and then just everything else doing its own thing it was a fairly good way of continuing the trend of what we were seeing in disney at this point of let do this really really cheap and try to make a bunch of money off of it there were some interesting technological innovations or interesting ideas that they played with here, but the budget for this movie was $1.35 million compared to Fantasia's $2.28 million. It was definitely a cheaper thing to do. It was pretty easy to throw out there. They could have individual people working on individual segments. It didn't need all of the, like, everyone in the studio working together on every single thing that some of the other films did. So it was really an easy film to kind of throw out there as they were, you know, working through a war. This movie did actually come out after the war. It was technically one of the first movies to come out after the war. But because it was being created during it, it was very helpful to be able to kind of chunk it up as they had done with some of these others and really be able to kind of do completely different things because the music and the art style changes in, in basically every short which meant that they didn't need the continuity focus that was so important in some of the earlier films. You could probably have, for most of these, you know, one animator drawing every drawing of a single character, where it's not like, you know, over the course of a feature like Snow White, you have to have a really rigorous like model for Snow White, and everybody has to draw Snow White the same so that the movie works together in the final, the final piece. That also shows in the choice of director, which was uh, Jack Kinney. So he was a longtime Disney employee. He directed many, 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 many short films. And he's the credited director of most of the package films when you see like the directed by credit after Make Mine Music. And then each segment had its own director, but he did about half of the 10 that are in this. 
And so, again, it kind of makes sense to have a shorts director, someone who's used to managing smaller teams that are working on their own individual material, put together the whole package versus someone who's better at story and follow it, you know, follow, sustaining a story over a feature length film. The other thing I want to mention to make sure that we mention, because this is one that's so, that so few people have seen, this also doesn't have any in-between segments to try to transition between or tie the shorts together. This very much is like a, it's most similar to our first episode where those were pre-existing shorts kind of pieced together. This basically just has like an opening credits sequence and it kind of has a the end title card, but you could argue that that's just the end of the last short in the program. And so, you know, it's not like Fantasia or Three Caballeros where there is this, you know, sort of thread. The package doesn't have any wrapping around the individual pieces. <laughs> Very much just moving you from the end of one short, a new one starts, a new one starts, a new one starts. This is probably the best credited movie that Disney put out at this point. You watch the opening credits of this movie and it's just name after name after name. Uh, which is great. I, I love seeing that people are actually getting credit. But for instance, the story by credits 17 different people. Oddly enough, three of them named Dick, which I find a little bit odd. I guess that was the popular name of the year. But it's it's definitely a huge deviation from like, okay, we've got like three people who are really working on the story. This is, everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. You maybe had two, maybe three people working on each individual section which definitely shows in the fact that some of them, I would say, are really, really great quality. And some of them are in the movie, which I'll probably say a lot. <laughs> Just briefly, very briefly, we'll talk more about our overall thoughts at the end. But I, I will say one of the things that I enjoyed about watching this is seeing the variety. And some of these feel a little more experimental or I don't want to say ambitious is probably too strong a word, but like, they're going for something and, you know, that stuff works better in a short thing, but I feel like it's maybe even safer to package a bunch of shorts together with like one or two that, you know, are really good. And then a, a bunch where you're like, well, the, people might like this versus trying to send that short out on its own and get theaters to buy, you know, it, it's something that I, I didn't see anybody mention when I was trying to, trying to find stuff to read about this movie, but, you know, I'd be interested to know more of like the, why these are in a movie and why other shorts that they were putting out are just shorts that they were putting out. So, but the censorship starts right away because the first section of this movie is not on the Blu-ray or DVD version. So you get the opening credits and it jumps right to the second segment, which shouldn't be the first segment of the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll say that again when we get there. But the, the first segment, the reason for the censorship is the cartoonish gunplay, I don't buy, I actually don't buy that at all. I don't think that that's actually the reason. I think the reason is for something you called out in your notes, and I also made it in my notes when I, when I watched it. This ends with a domestic violence joke. And I think that's the reason why it is, it, it's been fully, fully censored from uh, Disney. Now, if you do want to watch the Martins and the Coys, it is easily accessible on YouTube and in pretty decent quality. That's my theory now is that it's that domestic violence gag at the end that that is the reason for it censored. And we promised we would actually tell you what these shorts are about. So I'm actually going to do that right now. So this is 
very obviously inspired by the, the real life Hatfield McCoy feud, which was a conflict between two rural American families along the West Virginia Kentucky border in the area of Tug Fork on the Big Sandy River. And that feud lasted from 1863 to 1891. And it was actually a very popular subject for films and cartoons. Buster Keaton did a short that was, that was again, all, and they always pick names that set, sort of evoke the original names, but aren't the actual names. But Buster Keaton did a short based on it in 1923. There was a cartoon starring Egghead, which is the character that would be eventually known as Elmer Fudd. Uh, there was a, a, a Betty Boop take on the feud and a short called Pass the Biscuits, Mirandy, which was a 1943 swing symphony short from Walter Lance Studio. And then after this point, there was a Bugs Bunny cartoon that was also based on this that was released in 1950. So it, it's one of those things where it's well known enough that it's been done by a bunch of cartoons. This, you know, doesn't involve a recurring character dropping into the to the feud, which is what most of those other ones are. But this depicts sort of the origin of or or I guess like the resolution if you will of the feud and so it opens with the two families on different sides of the of this they each have like a, a bluff overlooking a river below and it involves the two families they start to get into a squabble they all kill each other and then there's only two left a very beautiful girl on the one side and a very large young man <laughs> i guess i could say on the other so the feud ends with the two of them getting married because instead of killing each other, they fall in love and they have a big wedding and everybody dances and have a good time. And then again, the punchline at the end is that we see their house and they are constantly fighting with each other. With this short, one of the things to keep in mind is the song existed before the short did. The song, The Martins and the Coys, was written by Alan Cameron and Ted Weems and was released in 1936. This pre-existed. This isn't all Disney, but um, just just for those of you at home who are curious, uh, some of the beloved uh, lyrics of this wonderful Disney tune include, when two families got disputin', it was sure to end in shootin', which is, you know, nice. It's got that fun little rhyme in it. And old Grandpa Coy has gone where angels live. When they found him on the mountain, he was bleeding like a fountain. For they punctured him till he looked like a sieve. Let's see. And then, and they scarred the mountains up with shot and shell. There was uncles, brothers, cousins. Sure, they bumped him off by dozens. But just how many bit the dust, it's hard to tell. So really, one of those heartwarming Disney classics that we all know and love from our child. No, wait, no, this isn't. This isn't one of those, you know, beloved Disney songs. I wonder why. Yeah, like like Ryan said, it it just the concept doesn't make any sense for Disney. They then go on to talk about Grace's figure and basically show a silhouette of her naked body. They show all the dead bodies just kind of there every now and then, and then the end, the the wonderful punchline of this amusing and entertaining sketch is yeah, domestic violence. They do give the woman the upper hand here. So it isn't just seeing a man beat his wife to death, but um, That's that a doesn't good make it better. That doesn't make it better that she's the one who is successfully beating him. But the song finds it very funny to end it by saying, or since Grace and Henry wedded, they fight worse than all the rest did. 
and they've carried on the feud just like before. Because that's what we need. The lovely end to the joke is, but don't worry, the feud didn't end with a Romeo and Juliet love, because they hate each other too. Don't you love when marriages end in, you know, physical violence and just hatred? Isn't that so funny? I have to admit, I was mostly on board with it until the the end gag. I was like, oh, like, it's kind of cute to, to, like, turn this into, like, a little romance. That, and, like, and there's comedic moments kind of throughout, you know, and, and there's, like, there's funny gags with, like, the, you know, when they're all dancing at the wedding. And, you know, there's a bunch of fun stuff throughout there. I did actually especially like the gag that one of the guys who was in the cloud was keeping a tally of every time somebody new showed up. I did not notice that one. <laughs> he was like making lines on the cloud itself. Like that was a good gag. And like I said, I was, I'm not saying it's the greatest. I'm not saying that like, you know, Disney, Disney's committing, is burying great art when they censored this from the movie. It's just, like I said, I thought it, I thought it was cute. I used cute in quotes. Like I thought it was a cute take on it. Nothing particularly special. And then that last guy kind of really does sink it for me because it just like I I understand times were different, but that it's a little it's just a little much and it's a little a little too far. I expected that the feud was going to live on. I was really expecting that they got married and they were all good. And then she would have a baby or she would get pregnant and out would pop two twins one that looks exactly like a Martin, one that looks exactly like a Koi with guns pointed at each other just like right out of the womb. I thought that's where we were going, which is not necessarily better, but kind of is in some way. Part of this is us looking back. Disney has done so, so much work to present themselves as this like happy family company that's everything that you can show your children and everything's wonderful. And there might be like some inappropriate jokes, but they're not things that the kids would notice. And this one, there's, there's really no, no obscuring what's going on. It's very overt, which to me feels more Looney Tunes-esque in the violence angle. It's very much not narrative that Disney has presented, at least in the last I would say 35 years. I think that's a great point. And I, I definitely agree with you that this, if this was a Looney Tunes short, I don't even think I would have balked at the domestic violence at the end because like that's sort of not domestic violence in particular, but like that is the sort of gag that fits the Looney Tunes tone and approach that they've developed. Like it's on brand for them in a way that I'm like, yes, of course that's how they would resolve it. But but it, it stands out differently because I'm coming in with my 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 Disney mindset. But no, I, I also absolutely agree with you. I was I was like, oh, they're going to have kids and the kids are going to feud. Like, that's how the, the feud is going to go on. But this this romance is going to be this weird in, interperiod. <laughs> well, it just sort of, you know, dropped drop the floor out from from this one for me. But the I like the colors of it. Like, it's very bright and colorful. You know, I think, like I said, I, I like some of the gangs in it, but over, overall, it's not anything super special, you know, and I think the the song is fine. And then it's just the other two things that like this immediately brought for mind for me is like one, I think the mix of genres here is interesting because I feel like this was still at a time when popular music wasn't as divided as it became later, where like. You know, you like you'd have the radio on, and there wasn't like, oh, here's the country station, here's the 
pop station. I, I guess it's I guess it's just pop. You know, here's the classical station, here's the jazz station. Like some of this was kind of all mixed together, you know, especially in in certain areas. And so you would hear different very different styles of music all in a row. But the move from this to Blue Bayou was very jarring. Once I once I synced up the like I switched from like I watched the intro, like I tried to get the experience of watching the opening credits, then watching this short and then going and then watching Blue Bayou as quickly as I could make my TV change between apps to try to get that experience. And and this transition was more jarring than anything else that comes later. That transition is extremely jarring. So the second segment is Blue Bayou, which is like five minutes of this very blue bayou. That, that's all that can really be said about it. There are some birds that appear from time to time. But basically, it's just fairly slow, calm music and some pretty landscapes. And that's about all that's going on. And it's a very, very jarring transition, musically, stylistically. And part of that, perhaps, is the fact that this segment was supposed to be in Fantasia. And it very much does not feel like it's necessarily meant to be in this movie. And we had talked on one of our episodes before about the difference between the, the very arbitrary but sort of recognizable distinction between cartoon and animated film. And this is definitely the animated film of this entire package. And so it really does stand out. And for me, Blue Bayou is a good song, but this version is not particularly great. And Claire de Lune is such a much like. I can hear Claire de Lune more when I see what's on screen than I do with Blue Bayou, even though we are literally seeing a Blue Bayou. The mood of it, I think, fits the more classical song a lot better in terms of just like tone and, and visual style. It's, it really feels like it should have been part of Fantasia very directly, even more so than anything else in this entire 10 film set. For our listeners, I don't know if we actually said this outright. When it was intended to be part of this ongoing Fantasia kind of spectacle, the Blue Bayou segment was supposed to be accompanied by Claire de Lune that had been orchestrated with Stokowski. And then they just really changed this kind of last minute to the extent that the pre-release publicity for Make Mine Music literally still includes a classic Claire de Lune is heard in the Blue Bayou sequence. And then they changed it very last minute. So it's it's kind of jarring, historically speaking, to see that transition happen. And so you still have kind of the animation of the Claire de Lune, which fits Fantasia. But the music that might fit better in Make Mine Music in such a way that it kind of doesn't really work as either. But it's a very beautiful, non-offensive short. I think this would be the one short, if there were to be one, that were to be played in doctor's offices or like in an elevator or something. Like nobody's going to have a problem with this. Right. This is probably the one time I will say there, I can't find a single thing that somebody could gripe about in this short. There's really nothing to gripe about except the change in music. Nothing really happens. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's very nice. I have no problem with it. I would basically describe this as non-narrative. Like, it, it just really is a... I mean, it's subtitled a tone poem. Like, most people who make tone poems don't call them that. <laughs> and so, just, it's right there. Like, it, it is, that's exactly what it is. And I, 
it's very pretty. Like it is very pretty to look at. And I really enjoyed watching it. And again, it's just that this version of Blue Bayou just does not do anything for me. And Claire de Luna is a song that I like. So I would I would probably rather see it that way. But again, there's nothing really to complain about it, except it's just not the thing I exactly want it to be. The segment that follows that jumps the energy level up about a thousand times. <laughs> Because we get to All the Cats Join In, which is one of two segments as Benny Goodman and his orchestra contributed the music for. And so there, the song in this is just called All the Cats Join In. And again, it's Benny Goodman and his orchestra. And it's it's basically just a night out on the town with teenage Bobby Soxers or hipsters, as they were, would have been called at the time. And so it it starts with... The whole style of it is kind of very flat and minimalist. And then it is sort of like you are watching a living, a thing being animated in, in real time a little bit. So the, there's a pencil that comes on screen to draw things. The Most of the transitions, like the paper looks like it gets torn up or crumpled up as it transitions between scenes in this. And it starts with a teenage girl getting a, a phone call at her house. And then she's running around the house getting ready. And she runs out the door. and you know, the, the car takes off before the pencil can draw the, the back wheels. And so it, you know, it draws a stoplight. So the car stops and then draws the back wheels on real quick. You know, we see a kid running across his lawn with one of those rug beating things because he was doing that kind of chore outside. And, you know, they all head down to like the malt shop or the, the jazz club and th they dance and they date and they have a good time. And, that's basically the whole thing. So it's a, it's a very simple story, but it's very energetically told. I really like the color palette in this. It reminds me of like jewel tones almost. Like it's just very like solid orange and purple and blue and green. Like very, not super bright, but just like deep colors. And I enjoy the style of music. I think it's really fun. And it, it feels very modern. Like there's a bit of like baby weems where, uh, you know, we talked about how that felt like it was take one of the few things that we'd seen from Disney so far that took place when it was made because so much of the like Mickey cartoons and silly symphonies like feel like they're meant to feel kind of vintage in this time. And like the time period that they're depicting isn't very, it's rural, I guess. So it, it can feel older than it even is intended to be versus when you see like a city with buildings in it and cars and, and more modern things like that. I really enjoyed this. It made me think of the classic Daffy Duck cartoon where he's being tormented by the pencil called Duck Amok. And that didn't come out until 1953. So this is nine years before that. So it's it's kind of interesting that that's become such an iconic Looney Tune short and it, the tone here is very, very different. With the way that gag of the pencil drawing things on the screen is used, but it was just kind of a fun thing that reminded me, again, another sort of Looney Tunes reminder as we're going through this. The art style here was uh, Freddie Moore. We had talked about him and his pinup girls in, again, in our Reluctant Dragon episode where we talked about the strike. And this is where one of the few times he was able to use a little bit of a pinup-y style in an official Disney project project. He was known for his drawings of what they called Freddy's Girls, which were you know, you can see how even though he's drawing teens here, like that's very much his style if you go and Google his his artwork. I enjoyed this one for the most part. It's 
obviously there there's some jokes at the girl's expenses. She's drawn one day and then she kind of glares at the animator to like tighten her waist up a little bit. But overall, it's it's very fun. It doesn't change my life, but it was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I do find it funny that you think of the Looney Tunes because I immediately thought of SpongeBob Doodlebob, who was introduced in 2001 because that's when... I was watching most of my cartoons where, you know, a pencil falls into the sea and SpongeBob learns that he can alter reality with the pencil and creates a clone that is evil and destroying everything by erasing things and drawing new things. And I definitely enjoyed the way that the gags were integrated in a way that just felt fun for the most part. Like I said, a couple of mean-spirited jokes, but for the most part, the characters were having fun. Seemed like the animators were having fun. It just seemed like a cool interplay that showed off kind of the talent of the artists, which is something I always find really kind of great in some of these early films. It was also interesting to see Disney portray teenagers. Like that's not a subject that they're usually doing at this time. And it's, you know, I thought about how how much more teenage culture was going to be prevalent once we get into the 1950s, just American culture in general, not specific to to Disney. And it was interesting how much this could have felt like the 50s with, if it was different music, the clothes were a little bit different. You know, it would feel like a 50s thing so easily because that's, you know, that's like the teenage moment, culturally speaking. And so it was kind of cool to get a, a precursor of that and think about like teenagers who were alive at that time. Like they, they weren't old enough to be drafted or anything so you know they were still all at home and you know having the best time that they could have i guess this is one of the other areas of censorship however because i'm not sure of the status of the current physical release i think in that one they didn't edit any any frames out of the movie but they reduced some of the apparent nudity from the main teenage girl character as she's getting ready, there's a scene where she like is hit is behind a towel and she hops in the shower, she gets out of the shower, and then like she puts her clothes on like very, very quickly. And it's not I don't know, to me it didn't feel like leering too much. Like it was just a little like like a fun little tease kind of a gag, more than it was meant to be, like overtly sexual. So they they trimmed a little bit to make her appear less busty, apparently. <laughs> with some digital touch-up, but on previous home releases, they had actually censored a few, like, they seconds here and there of that sequence to try to trim it down. But I think this is also another reminder that Disney isn't for kids only just yet. Like, they're not targeting kids with any of the stuff they're putting out. They are trying to, to target a mass audience, and I feel like, you know, again, it's it's the, the kind of entertainment we really get these days which i would call family or all ages like we get a lot of stuff that's like very much aimed at children and then we get stuff that is like aimed at older children teens and adults but we don't get that true you know like i think of a movie like holes it's not inappropriate for kids but like an adult would find it entertaining because it's like a good movie it tells an interesting story that happens to be about children but it's not a it's not a kid's movie in that same way. It, it feels more like a family. They expect adults and, and everybody to be able to watch it and enjoy it. We're definitely seeing this kind of 
cognitive dissonance almost of like what Disney is supposed to be in these kinds of films. They hadn't dictated it yet, which puts us in this interesting situation where we can watch some of it back and go, well, that's not very Disney of them. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. the audience of the time really wouldn't have necessarily felt any of that. The other thing that's kind of interesting to note with context here is, is that this was by and large all fairly popular music or at least popular artists, whereas we just kind of either go, oh yeah, that's an old name that I know or don't know the names at all, which is particularly interesting with the next segment which doesn't necessarily have much going on visually, but might have some kind of interesting notes when we're talking culturally. So the next segment is called Without You, which is essentially a song about being lonely without the person that you love. The visuals are very, very simplistic again. We see basically stars and trees, 90% of the animation. It's definitely more of an aesthetic kind of feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, We briefly see either a breakup letter or just a letter to someone who's far away. It's a little difficult to tell, but that's really all that the visuals are. But the behind the scenes is a little bit interesting because the singer of Without You is Andy Russell, who is actually fairly famous for blending English and Spanish in his music. And he ended up being very, very successful in Latin America. So you look at this and you kind of go, was this tying back into Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, were they still kind of trying to push that mission of like drawing these connections between Latin America and the United States? Not that this particular song is very Latin in flavor, just that people who knew the singer, as many of them would have, would kind of get that little cultural angle there that I found interesting. The segment itself, my literal note was, I honestly feel very neutral about this. I I have no issues with it. It's nice. But I think that it probably held some more kind of resonance and meaning for the people in the time that it came out, just simply because they would have known more about Andy Russell and what he did. Yeah. And and I think that definitely applies here. This, I would agree with everything that you said that, again, this is just, it's nice to look at. I find the song pleasant. But it doesn't move me in any particular way, you know, other than like feeling the emotion of the music and the visuals go well with it. This one maybe just really feels like a music video in all those meaningful ways. Where it's just a kind of thematic representation of the song as you're listening to the song. The next segment feels a lot longer than it is. I was surprised when I watched it the second time how how quickly it actually went by. But it is uh, Casey at the Bat based on a poem by Ernest Thayer. And it just, again, it's like a spoken word version of the poem that kind of goes along with the music and is said in sort of a rhythmic kind of way, you know, with with little voices and things. But it's like a dramatic sort of poetry reading more than it's a song, really. The story or the fable, if not the poem itself, is still pretty well known where it's, you know, kind of that 1890s first golden age of baseball and the home team is about to lose the game and they have their star batter Casey come up and he's you know t- he takes two strikes cuz he's so confident and then he strikes out and you know the town all hates him and everything and it's a very straightforward baseball story this is one of two segments in this that I had seen before 
because of something we'll talk about in the legacy section, I was very sort of aware of it as even as a kid and enjoyed this take on, on the poem. Yeah, I think that this is one of the rare things that I've actually seen before, too. I'm pretty sure that my like seventh grade English teacher had us read the poem and showed this video. Or there's somebody else who has done a very similar video, which, you know, is certainly possible. But I definitely knew the story and fairly well remembered uh, some of these visuals. It's definitely one of the standouts. And to me is, if you're watching kind of chronologically, you go, oh, okay, this is, this is a big change of pace from Blue Bayou and Without You, which again, nothing wrong with them, but they, they aren't super engaging. This one is definitely meant for entertainment. I'm also just very narratively driven, which this had a strong narrative. You know, you're watching, you're, you're going along with the crowd, you're feeling along with the other batters. One of the things that I personally enjoy is that they were down by two. So just Casey succeeding wouldn't have been enough. So they have two of the batters before him manage to get on bases through completely ludicrous memes, which is just kind of enjoyable because you're like, yeah, this guy never gets on a base. And he got there, you know, one of them gets to third, I believe. And I'm like, this guy has never gotten this far on the diamond before. He's so excited that he thinks he's about to like cross home in case he ruins it for everyone. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Ryan, were you upset uh, that Casey didn't do it? Did you want him to succeed? Because I was actually watching it with other people and they were like, oh, but I actually kind of wanted to see that like triumphant moment. And I'm like, no, he literally stopped a ball <laughs> midair and threw it away because yeah. he was so confident that he would hit it in the one time. I feel bad for the team. I feel bad for those other two guys that were on the bases, but I don't I don't feel bad for Casey. I, I think he's he's too conceited for his own good. Yeah, and I think there's so much humor in how they how exaggeratedly over the top egotistical they portray him that it really the fall is actually kind of satisfying and I think the way that it's showing how it like affects the whole town. <laughs> And, you know, they, they now all hate him and, and, and all that stuff. I think that's actually, it's intrinsic to the story. Like, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a story if he hit the ball. Like, that's not, like, it's, it's not that kind of, you know, it, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a story of triumph. It is a story of overextending yourself and just, again, it's, it's not that he's so confident he's going to hit the ball. It's that he's so overconfident that he purposely throws away two perfectly good attempts to hit the ball because he just could have hit that first ball and ended the whole thing. So uh, no, his, his comeuppance is absolutely part of the part of the story that needs to be there for it to, for it to really make sense. This is the, this is one of three, I think that actually could stand on their own as a short. And so I'm not surprised that we had both seen it as here's this, cartoon short about baseball because again i think the narrative helps it stand on its own and so the the three narr most narrative ones i think you could watch without seeing any of the others and and perfectly enjoy them and felt like you had like a complete experience unfortunately i feel like i'm getting all of the kind of low energy ones as we trade off here the next one is kind of 
I think to some extent they bounce between the like really exciting ones and the kind of mellow ones. And that's that's useful in many ways. It does give the audience kind of the time to breathe between some of the more kind of enrapturing ones. The next segment that they get is two silhouettes, which is essentially two dancers in silhouette dancing. The song talks about how when two people are dancing in silhouette, they become one. And that is exactly what happens in the drawings. They are guided by two little cherubs. But I think the most interesting stuff about this definitely comes from the technological side and the Fantasia-y status of it, because this is something that is definitely much more fascinating given this podcast than I think it would have been on its own. Yeah. I am personally a dancer. I love dancing. I think that silhouettes of dance are really beautiful. But again, this is something that could take it or leave it. This featured actual rotoscoping, which I might be mispronouncing there, which I think was really cool. Essentially, what they did was they recorded live action dancers and then just drew the silhouettes over them, which is kind of an interesting take because on the one hand, you know, it's a lot easier than making it from scratch. But on the other hand, they got some really remarkable detail work in there, really capturing like the crispness of a silhouette that I think is just technically very interesting. And the other thing that's kind of interesting for Disney historians and fun fact people is that uh, the dancers were actually two of the same dancers who had modeled for the Dance of Hours in Fantasia. I'm so going to butcher these names. David Chin and Tanya Rabuchinskaya, which I am certain I have butchered. But it's just kind of interesting to see definitely that kind of status of this movie as Fantasia Take Two unfortunately, that has, as we said before, been kind of called the poor man's Fantasia, because you do see these interesting little continuities and continued technological growths. I really like this one, but probably more because of doing this podcast and watching all of, all of these in order. I didn't know that those models were in Fantasia before the first time I watched it, but seeing the silhouettes and the way that they were done and how they looked was absolutely fascinating so i just was like captivated for this for you know it's it's maybe three or four minutes long at most and again i think this is an argument in favor of packaging all these together because this is not something that could stand on its own but it works as a sort of break between especially the longer more narrative segments uh, really well and then that's followed up by peter and the wolf which is based on the all of a sudden i was like wait concerto <laughs> like i mini opera like I, I don't know music like those kinds of classical musical terms to know off off the top of my head what peter and the wolf is but it is based on the piece of music by sergey prokofiev the composer had visited the disney studio in february of 1938 during the production of pinocchio and fantasia and he had told walt disney i have composed this with the hope that i would get to see you and that you would make a cartoon with my music which is very interesting, I think, just to have a piece that like I did not realize was that recent. The person who wrote it talking to Disney about adapting their own work, I think that's actually a first for this podcast that we've had so far, because I think most of the other authors have been dead. No, because the no, because Dumbo was new. So I guess I, I guess Dumbo in that that interesting comic 
on the side of a package <laughs> kind of thing was. But anyway, Peter and the Wolf is the very famous story about this young boy Peter and his animal companions and the wolf in the forest that is trying to eat them. And so I like this a lot. I like the way that the characters are drawn, especially Sterling Holloway, an interesting choice for narrator. I'm not sure he's quite right for it, or I'm just so used to Winnie the Pooh that it's really weird to hear Winnie the Pooh narrate this particular story. I will say, I read a review that said, and I I apologize because I don't remember exactly which person said this, but there was a review of this that said that actually adapting this story visually actually sort of takes away from the music because part of the music is that you imagine what these characters look like as you're listening to it based on the sounds that are used to represent them and their movements and things and making it so literal makes it a very like you know for them it really took away from the musical experience kind of how people were complaining about fantasia when that came out so it was just an interesting kind of similar take on that idea or that criticism it's very good as what Walt wanted Fantasia to be as an introduction for people who aren't classical music lovers, because people who already love classical music, and I would describe this as classical music, it is kind of the outlier in this piece. Those who already love classical music are already doing this. They're already kind of visualizing and creating it based on the music, but most people aren't. And I thought that they did a really good job of explaining that, you know, each of the animals or each of the characters has this kind of instrument. And I don't think it necessarily takes away from it to show how that could be visualized because then it helps people to do that in future instances. And we can always visualize it in different ways. I thought that it did a very good job giving those kind of musical characterizations just a little bit more depth. I thought that it did a really good way of kind of foreshadowing things and really building the emotion. My big thing, just as I watched this, most people would say that this is probably the standout of this movie, I would say. And I, I completely agree. The thought that kept going through in my mind was, wow, this is my absolute favorite short from Fantasia. <laughs> Not that it's in Fantasia or anything, but it, it definitely should have been. I think it might have given Sorcerer's Apprentice a run for its money, which wasn't what Walt wanted for the record. So I understand why it wouldn't have been put in there. This was definitely something that I, I really enjoyed. There are so many amazing voice actors who can do so many different amazing things. But Winnie the Pooh is Winnie the Pooh. And it's a little weird to have Winnie the Pooh narrating this story without referencing that he is. Like, I kind of want, like, a five-second clip at the beginning that's just showing Winnie the Pooh opening a storybook. And that's all I need to be like, ah, okay, Winnie the Pooh is telling me this wonderful story. I'm very curious to see, actually, how many times we talk about him performing before we actually get to Winnie the Pooh. Because that's still almost 20 years in the future, I think. So, like... Mm -hmm. It's so funny, though, that if maybe if they had ever theatrically released Make My Music, they would have added... They're like, oh, Pooh's in it now. Like, go see it because Pooh's in it. And it's just like five seconds of him opening a book. I don't know if that would help or hurt my cognitive dissonance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy this a lot. It's not, it's not my favorite. Like, I think you like it more than I do, but I do agree with you that it is very good. And I, I really like the character designs in it. And I think your point about it 
being the thing that actually sort of accomplishes what Fantasia sets out to do, I think is actually a really great point about why they wanted to keep sort of adding things, you know, and taking things out of Fantasia because this was like on the list of like, well, you know, while being like in like in 1942, like, well, Peter and the Wolf complete and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll slide that in. And with the idea that Fantasia was going to sort of be a movie that would almost always be in theater somewhere, you know, traveling, traveling around the country and the world. I think this is a really good example of them, you know, doing it, another take on that Fantasia idea of introducing music to people. Rather than kind of bouncing back and forth, which I think the movie has kind of done up till that point, After You've Gone actually really kind of continues that in my mind. So the next segment, After You've Gone, is based on music by Henry Creamer and Turner Layton in 1918, which is still pretty close in this time period. But essentially what it does is as it plays the music, you see kind of the instruments going around and you see people working on pianos and... I got some weird visual reverb with this just based on what's come out since. For instance, in the theatrical release poster for the movie, they show the clarinet and the drum from this. And they are very, very similar silhouettes to Lumiere and Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) They also show some fingers running across a piano, but then they turn into like can-can girls, which just deeply reminded me of the thumb villains in Scott in spy kids where they had like the people whose heads and arms and feet were all thumbs very similar visual which is i'm sure not what disney wants to hear about this piece i, I thought it was really good i thought it continued to do a good job kind of bringing music to life in a way that a lot of people maybe wouldn't have thought about it before but again with over 60 years <laughs> Of, of media after it, it kind of had some weird visual elements for me. I think this episode exemplifies the difference between like your pop cultural references and my pop cultural references. Because <laughs> I've not seen Spy Kids. I've not seen that SpongeBob episode. So I, th- I think this is a, a perfect example of like where our, our age difference, you know, sort of generation difference kind of lives, which is funny. But yeah, I, I enjoyed this piece. This is the other one that's performed by the Penny Goodman group. And so it, it is not, the music itself isn't an actual callback, but it sort of feels like it's, again, sort of segmenting it through where you're now getting some of the similar sounds from the teens, you know, sort of bleeding back in. It is also kind of a tone poem itself, and I think it works pretty well that way. The next to last segment is Johnny Fedora and Alice Bluebonnet about two hats who fall in love in the window of a department store, get bought by two different people, spend most of their lives trying to find each other again, only to, in a sort of O. Henry-esque ending, both hats are damaged to the point where they are bought by a man for his two horses. <laughs> and the they wind up back together, finally where they want to be, on the heads of two horses pulling a delivery cart. And the song is original to this. It was performed by the Andrews sisters, who were pretty popular. They are and sort of remain popular, although probably, you know, they're they're one of those artists that are only on most people's like Christmas music rotation because they were in the movie White Christmas and they are they sing uh, one of Bing Crosby's like most famous Christmas albums. So uh, they're like a name where I'm like, oh yeah, like I know, I have knowledge of who those people are a little bit more so than like, that's an old timey sounding name. 
I really enjoyed the short. Again, it's it's interesting to me to see Disney draw more of a again in a, a urban modern style. It's just not something I associate with them until like 101 Dalmatians, which again is over 20 years in the future from this movie. And so it's neat getting a view into that world and the way that they would draw it at this time in the 1940s, which I thought was really interesting. And and again, the song is like that, you know, sort of sad and then happy ending kind of songs, um, which is, you know, perfectly sentimental. Um, I thought this was pretty good but again to to quote you megan didn't change my life but it did remind me of the 2013 pixar short blue umbrella about two umbrellas who are in love with each other um that played in front of monsters university and it is like a photo reel like it almost looks like they took video footage and put cartoon faces on the objects in the movie more than it looks like animation and it was one of those like pixar is like here's our proof of concept like here's like we're gonna blow your mind with these visuals and then we're also going to make you feel really sad at the same time (laughs) kind of shorts and so i remember almost being like almost getting that sort of uncanny valley feeling watching this in the theater uh when it came out but i do think it is very well done and while watching it i was like oh i wonder like this has to be inspired but or the the pixar short has to be inspired by these two hats Uh, while I was watching this. I had never seen this short before the Blue Umbrella specifically. Well, neither of them. And so, (laughs) Ryan, you had sent it to me earlier today and I watched it and I went, wow, there's like some shot-for-shot moments here where it Mm -hmm. is literally the same thing. Specifically, in both short films, there's a moment where the man tries to walk away with our main character piece of accessories or whatever, and they exert some form of movement on their own and the person fights them and they're like no i'm finding my true love and like fly away from their owner which is a a good gag Mm -hmm. in both of the shorts but it's definitely kind of a shot for shot thing my problem and i've i've brought this up before if you're going to anthropomorphize this i need to know the rules because this hat and the umbrella go through so much and it be okay in the blue umbrella we actively see everything else in the city trying to stop this umbrella from getting hurt so there mm-hmm. seems to be an implication that they can feel pain and there's a very similar kind of vibe in the hat version where we're we're really sad to see Johnny Fedora getting like beaten up and and almost drowned and all of that And then it gets pulled out and everyone's getting kind of excited. And then there's a line in the song that's something like, and without any malice, part of Johnny was cut off or something because they they cut apart the hat so that it can fit on this horse. And then it's just a happy ending. But I just, and mock me all you will, I know this is a tangent, but this is a common thread with me. All I'm thinking is true love is great. An eldritch being just picked you up, cut off part of you, which may not have hurt. You have the ability to move on your own, but don't have feelings, maybe? Nerve endings? Unclear. But, like, cool, now now I'm missing various pieces of my body. But it's all cool, because my girlfriend's on the horse next to me. Like, this is horrifying. This is the aliens picking you up and cutting off your limbs to experiment with you. 
And yet it's supposed to be this kind of heartwarming ending. I know this is silly. I get it. But if you're going to anthropomorphize them, it's the same thing with Toy Story. It's the same thing with so many of these Pixar movies. If you're going to make me feel for an inanimate object, don't beat it up. I really deeply appreciate that you are a rules person because at some point in my life, I was definitely a rules person. I, I've slacked off on my, there needs to be rules for everything and the sake of like, oh, those tats look, do look really cute together. Like, I mean, the, the real question though is, do they know that they're hats? And like, how do they feel about being hats? That is completely unclear in, in the story. So the hats seem to have a life because it's it's very much implied that they were like, born or made in the shop where they were sold so they Mm -hmm. they came into existence and they were together and they fell in love for an extended period of time and then were separated so that seems to imply that there's like a a lifeline but the umbrellas that all happens in the span of like an hour so Mm -hmm. it, it definitely seems to have different spectrums as far as like how deep of a soul these inanimate objects have but yeah are they possessed hats are the hats their own beings is it just like you know we have humans and dogs and cats and you know in this world they also have hats but my other thing and and i know that we're going way too far down this rabbit hole there are other hats that don't have faces and they go into one room where all of the people are animated in a different art style and are completely stationary so some people don't seem to have souls and some hats don't have souls but some people and some hats definitely do have souls and i just i I need to know what makes what makes me need to sympathize for these characters you can't just draw eyes on some of them and make me care i mean obviously you can or else i wouldn't have gone on this tangent but i don't know i don't know how to follow that up honestly um (laughs) because you're not wrong you're not wrong and this is why, again, at some point I was like, I just am going to be a happier person if I'm just like, you know what, those two hats look really cute together <laughs> and just accept accept the world as it is presented to me. No, I, I agree with I, I do agree with all of your points. I think it's it was really fun being reminded of that Pixar short in particular, because that that feels like it, it should be part of this movie's legacy and that, you know, clearly people who are the kind of people who go to college for animation and get jobs at Pixar, at least do remember this movie and it it had enough of an effect on them to inspire them to make their own possible retelling of of the story. I definitely think that one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit more in a little bit is that the direct legacies of this movie are, are kind of complicated, but there's definitely some possible indirect legacies that are kind of interesting, which brings us to the last segment in this, which is fittingly titled The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met which I just think is the best name of any of the shorts here. Essentially, the concept is is basically what you would imagine. There is a whale, and it likes to sing opera. And it's very good at singing opera. And long story short, this gets in all of the newspapers, because, of course, it's a whale singing opera. And this major opera figure is kind of asked what he thinks about it, and he decides that the only thing that makes sense is that the whale has eaten an opera singer. And this is the cries for help from the opera singer, which he eventually believes there are three opera singers that are just living inside of the whale. I did like that they referenced the Bible there. Kind of funny to me that they didn't also reference Pinocchio since we literally just had a movie 
of Geppetto just casually living inside of the whale. But this is kind of a, a thematic thing. But it is unfortunately a, a tragic ending because the opera Empresario, I believe, who is named Teddy Toddy, although all of the men who were working his ship seem to realize, like, no, this is just like the best whale in the world. And as the whale is having these these beautiful imaginings of of how he's going to go to the Met and perform all of these different roles and character bits and how amazing it will be for everyone. He he gets harpooned and dies. And and that's just an unnecessary ending in my <laughs> in my mind. They do show that like he went to heaven and there he is appreciated and his shows are always sold out. And that's that's kind of cute. But again, it like he he had to get murdered to get there. But just a quick thing for for me is that this again seemed to have kind of an indirect legacy to Louis the Crocodile or Alligator, I can't remember which, from Princess and the Frog, which for those of you who haven't seen it or don't remember, and it might be Louis, but I'm assuming Louis because he likes to perform jazz and he, this crocodile, would love to be able to like perform alongside jazz legends, a crocodile, and that scares people, and so nobody really wants to let that happen. <laughs> Very similar kind of arc. Except Louis eventually, I believe, as I recall, you know, gets to perform and gets like his moment in the limelight. And there's kind of this arc of like, maybe we shouldn't judge by appearances and stuff instead of, you know, murdering the main character. <laughs> so I like to think that that's kind of their their fix it. You know, mm -hmm. 50 years later, they, they gave a new character, more than 50 years, they gave a new character with kind of a similar arc that didn't end quite so tragically. I mean, I enjoyed the dramatic irony of Teddy Taddy being someone who was known for discovering opera singers in unusual places, and yet the most amazing and best opera singer he's ever seen, he murders. And, you know, I was also very impressed by Nelson Eddy, who we are told at the beginning not only narrates, but performs all of the voices and singing in that entire segment, which is just very incredible and very, very impressive. Uh, he's got a great voice. And so, uh, you know, I enjoyed the irony of it. It is a sad ending. It is also very funny. <laughs> like it's the, the humor is very funny. I want to ask you, were you bothered by where the whale's mouth was? I wasn't really concerned with the mouth. I was confused by the concept that a uvula somehow determines all of your vocal qualities i i could be wrong but i don't believe that that's how that works because that is one of the things that they claim that the whale has three uvulas and you know each one is a different like musical scale and so he can perform all three at once just by using his different uvulas so that was probably where I got kind of detracted. I didn't notice the mouth. Is it horribly wrong for an, an accurate whale? So his mouth in in the short is on the bottom of his belly because his mouth should if he's if he's upright. Right. Yeah, his mouth should open at the top. But his mouth is in the center of his belly. And he's like a like a Moby Dick kind of sperm whale looking type whale. Like he's kind of squared off in that way. But yeah, his his mouth, his jaw is it would be facing the sun <laughs> if he was animated to open with his mouth in the right location for his body. They did at least have 
eyes on either side of his head. So it wasn't a full, like, we're just going to put a face on an animal. You know, and I'm sure there's choices, but I did think about it as to that is not where that whale's mouth is. <laughs> but maybe that's why he can sing. I don't know. Maybe. I appreciated the fact that they, they would have the whale kind of jump in and out of the water. And so he would be singing a long note and you would hear like singing, singing, bubble, 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 singing, singing. Yeah. So I kind of, I think that that effect made me just be like, nope, that, that's where his mouth is. And when he goes underwater, he just makes gurgling sounds, which I thought was just kind of a, a cute little gag. But it also kind of gave some logical consistency to me, I guess. But yeah, I, I somehow did not notice that. That's, that's a good... Uh, we just have different oh. hang-ups. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I like the way this was done. I like the, the musicality of it. I like that it was sort of, you know, again, I think doing an interesting take on the let's bring classical music and tell it in a fun way. Not that this is going to turn anybody in. I mean, maybe it did turn some, somebody watching it at some point into a fan of opera but at least exposed you to opera. And again, the way that Looney Tunes is also very famous for doing. And then just one more note that I wanted to make is that we've tried to kind of mention as we went along who was performing and who wrote the things. Several of these pieces did already exist, but several didn't. Uh, there were multiple original songs. And one of the specific things to note is that other than the title song, which was written by Elliot Daniel and Ken Darby, all of the original songs in this movie were at least co-written by Ray Gilbert, who had possibly the biggest, like, overwhelming, overarching impact on this movie. Like we said, there were so many different kind of short directors and animators and story designers that having a hand in the crafting of so many of these songs was actually probably one of the biggest widespread impacts on the movie. And again, this this movie in, weirdly doesn't have you know the kind of legacy that a lot of other a lot of the other Disney movies that we've talked about so far have. But it was entered into the Cannes Film Festival in 1946, uh, which I assume is the first time they had had that in a little while. And then it opened at the Globe Theater in New York City, and it it earned uh, seventy thousand dollars in its first week, and it earned a little over two million dollars. Uh, in rentals in the U.S. and Canada, and altogether a little over $3 million worldwide. The highest-grossing film of that year was The Best Years of Our Lives, which also won, won Best Picture. That grossed about $10 million domestic by comparison. So, like, you know, I feel like it was probably financially successful for them and that it was, you know, based on taking back uh, more than twice its budget that we talk, talked about at the beginning, you know, it definitely was a sort of effective and, and cheap way to get a, get a feature film out the door and use some of these, you know, well-known musicians and a few well-known songs to kind of help bring people into the movie. Definitely. And I think that one of the other comparisons that would be kind of interesting to note, Fantasia is really hard to judge because it didn't have kind of the traditional release. It had this kind of touring release it was mm -hmm. only in one city with the specific sound systems at a time. But within the first 11 roadshows, which was several weeks, several months even, Fantasia had only earned $1.3 which, given that the budget for Fantasia was so much higher, really made that kind of seen as one of the big failures, economically speaking. 
So to see kind of that difference between 1.3 million and then the a little over 3 million in Make My Music, obviously it's very hard to compare the two, but you do kind of see where Disney could be at least understood to go, huh, this one worked out a lot better than the other mm-hmm. one. Certainly in return on investment, if nothing else. Right. And it's sort of like, why am I trying so hard to create this magnificent masterpiece? And then no one goes to see it. And we, for lack of a better term, throw some stuff together and it makes a lot more money. You know, it's just, it's interesting seeing the, not that people didn't work hard on these individual segments, but, you know, it wasn't the huge, massive planning and really intricate everything was really discussed in depth in detail when they were making Fantasia and this felt like it was sort of each segment was up to the people and working on it specifically so they they are really hard to compare but it's easy to see why Walt was like oh well you know this brought in some profit we should do some more of these maybe the critical reception at the time was kind of mixed I think that's also part of the you know package thing of it that like not everyone's going to like every segment and the way that people react of like you know, if they focus more on the ones they like or the more they the ones they didn't like, you know, in their reviews and reactions to it. But Abel Green of Variety said here Disney has retained all his characters in their basic art form, but endowed them with human qualities, voices and treatments, which is another step forward in a field where cartoons graduate into the field of classics. And I think it's really a really interesting take that I hadn't really thought about before. But there's Definitely some of the work in here, like especially the things with the teens and the the other Benny Goodman segment, there's a little bit more abstraction at play, you know, and even with something like Blue Bayou, where it's it's a, it's a tone poem, there's definitely more of that. We're going to try different art styles. We're going to push the art form forward, you know, not as not by leaps and bounds the way they were doing before, but kind of playing with style more so than they had before. But some people didn't didn't feel that that was successful. (laughs) We we have on the one hand that where cartoons graduate into the fields of the classics. uh, And then we have uh, Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, who said it is an unblushing patchwork assortment of 10 different animated shorts put together with no rhyme nor reason, but like the acts in a musical review. Some are delightful Disney fancies, and some are elaborate junk. Watching it is an experience in precipitate ups and downs. I feel like that's a little harsh. I I definitely kind of land in between the, like, the making of cartoons into classics and elaborate junk. But I definitely think that by listening to our podcast, you you can kind of feel both of those vibes going on that, Mm -hmm. you know, there are at least three shorts in this movie that just are in the movie, and there's at least two or three that really stand out. I think you can definitely see kind of the impact of both going on in that initial reaction. To anybody who complains about film critics today, they used to be mean. Like, <laughs> you know, like it, you don't see that tone too often directed at a, a, a big studio movie, you know, that is just a nice artistic piece with music. <laughs> like, man, Crowley just like, a, just eviscerated that movie. And again, kind of with its legacy, it's really not widely seen as Make Mine Music. And so the like the Rotten Tomato score for this right now is 51% among critics and 41% among audience people. It has a 6.2 rating on IMDb. So it, 
it's kind of in the middle. People are mixed on it, which again, given the structure of it and the ups and downs that we talked about, that kind of mixed review makes sense. Yeah, so we, we talked about uh, one whole segment and part of all the cats join in being censored. And then there's been a little bit of censorship around the whale who wanted to sing at the Met as he does sing Short and Bread in one of the scenes with lyrics that are have certainly not been sanitized in the way that most people would, would probably be familiar with the particular lyrics today. But as a folk song, it has evolved over time. And so that has been cut in the past, but is included in this release, at least. But I feel like more people have seen individual pieces of this, like we talked about with Casey, uh, Casey at the Bat, as many of these segments, like the, the Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met and Casey and Peter and the Wolf especially, were often shown on the you know Disneyland television program. They were included even in VHS releases that had comp- compilations of some of Disney's more famous shorts. Uh, so those have sort of been available, but the movie as a whole has really not gotten a, a really wide release. It was never put back into theaters, unlike a lot of the other movies in the Disney canon. And then uh, the other the other piece of sort of immediate legacy is that uh, there was a sequel, Casey Bats Again, which was released on June 18th of 1954. So nine years later, they did a Casey. I haven't seen that. I can't remember if there's a second actual poem or not. But, you know, you can kind of feel that that was sort of one of the breakout segments, which is one of the reasons that I'm familiar with it is at the multiple Disney theme parks, there is Casey's Corner, which is a baseball themed restaurant in Magic Kingdom in Florida and Disneyland Paris is inspired by Casey at the Bat. The the staff that works there, they wear baseball uniforms or like baseball uniform dresses, and it's very turn of the 1900s <laughs> century. And there's a piano outside and they play different music. And the indoor dining area has a TV that plays sports-themed Disney shorts. And Casey at the Bat, obviously, is one of the ones that often plays in there. And is, I don't know if I had seen it elsewhere before then, but I, I can sort of picture eating there with my parents when I was a kid. And, and that be playing on you know, the, the big TV that they had in that room. In Disneyland, there's a restaurant <laughs> named after the Blue Bayou. And in the Carousel of Progress attraction, which uh, premiered at the New York World's Fair in 1964, before Grandma changed the channel from the waltz to her her fights uh, as she's watching TV in the, uh, I think it's the present day segment, Two Silhouettes actually plays in the background, which I did not know. And uh, the next time I'm in Florida, I'm going to be certainly paying attention to make sure that I, I recognize that. Whether we were talking about controversial pieces or famous pieces or even lesser known ones, there are very clear direct legacies for basically all of the early Disney movies that we have discussed up till this point. And Make My Music is definitely kind of an outlier on that. I mean, there's only three notes that we could come up with for theme parks. There aren't really sequels. There aren't really huge moments that we see coming back uh, time and time again, other than those kind of indirect legacies we mentioned before, which makes it kind of a weird place alongside the fact that it is the only fully animated Disney movie that has not made it onto Disney+. Plus. So while it's not maybe as controversial or as culturally 
wrong, for lack of better words, as some of the other segments that we have or will talk about, there's definitely this kind of erasure of Make Mind Music that makes it, if nothing else, an interesting thing for us to talk about in the fact that it's very unknown outside of probably Casey at the Bat and Peter and the Wolf. There are other Disney movies, not, you know, fully animated ones, but there's still, there are definitely other, I would call like vintage live action Disney movies that are not on Disney Plus, but you can like rent them from like Amazon or Apple digitally. Make my music, you can't. The physical release is the only place that you can actually watch it anywhere at all. So it's not like it's even, you know, out to buy digitally. The Disney Movie Club is the only place to get this movie currently. And like I said, so it's one that I hadn't seen before sitting down to watch it for this podcast. And I didn't really know much about it because, again, the legacy, uh, there's nothing I could point to that I knew about that was from this movie. Like, I didn't realize that Casey at the Bat was in this movie until it started playing. But if you had asked me about the restaurant, I would have been like, oh, yeah, it's from that short. Like, I just would have assumed that that was a short that they had put out at some point. Its rarity is maybe its biggest legacy. And to me, what I think is interesting, especially in comparison to Fantasia, like, it feels very American. You know, like, and all the music, I think, except for Peter and the Wolf, is by American musicians. And so it, it, it makes that feel distinct. And then even Peter and the Wolf, like, the way that it's done feels like a very Americanized take on that, you know, non-American piece of music. And so this feels like it is much more in the American tradition compared to Fantasia, which has kind of a European sensibility at times, you know, especially with the choice of music and and some of the more abstract things. It feels, I I guess it feels more pretentious, which as an American also means European. Uh, So, but I think watching this, I felt that sort of American style of music or American styles of music, I should say, kind of coming through. And it really felt like, other than Peter and the Wolf and and maybe Casey, it really was aimed at adults. Because even The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met is, it's a sad story, even though it's presented in sort of a very, like, you know, kid-friendly way, I would say. The other segments didn't really make any concessions to kids or have gags, even, some of them. So I, I thought that was, again, kind of a, an interesting reminder that Disney was kind of not yet the, the kiddie movie company. And I get what you mean with the very like American vibe. I feel like even sometimes to the point of character, the Martins and the Coys is very caricatured America to me. There's a VR video game right now that's called The American Dream, where essentially you go around and you like barbecue and try and solve your problems and you just shoot at everything. Like you just have guns and, and that's how you solve your problems. Like oh, the hot dogs aren't fully cooked, let's shoot them. That'll that'll cook them. And that's kind of the vibe I got there with maybe going a little too far. The thing I do find interesting, kind of is opposite to that, is there is a noticeable Russian influence. I mean, Peter and the Wolf is Russian. It's, you know, by a Russian composer. Two silhouettes, the ballet dancers are Russian-Americans. Which is very interesting, given that Disney was at the stage of his life that he was calling everyone a communist and claiming that every problem that he ever had was because the those darn communists were just trying to ruin his life by starting strikes and wars and, and all of that. And we're 
we're heading into the Red Scare significantly more as we go into these next few films. So it's it's kind of interesting to me that, like you said, there is so much Americanism and then just a little bit of Russians uh, just sprinkled in for flavor. I mean, they were allies at the time this was was in production. So maybe maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But that that's a really interesting point. And then I really just wanted to wrap up by talking about our favorite and least favorite segments. Uh, so for me... I personally think that the whale who sing who wanted to sing at the Met is the best part of this movie to me. I actually really got a lot out of it, and it it did make me sad for him. But I appreciated that sort of like very comedic wind up and then a very sad ending. I thought actually worked really effectively. And seeing the whale and all the different costumes is just a very funny gag to me. And then my my other favorite segment is definitely all the cats join in. I just really enjoy the energy of that and the look of it and it's it's just very compelling and again it struck me as so not feeling like quote-unquote disney that i i just i just really enjoyed it so th- those two would be my favorites and then the martins and the coys and without you are probably my my least favorite like the ones where i probably wouldn't even notice if if i watched it again and they weren't in there and to be fair you know one of them isn't depending or- on your version neither of them are because without you was taken out of of a lot of the television uh, compilations here. I think it was kind of obvious my favorite is probably Peter and the Wolf, just because I feel like it does the job that was set out to be done in Fantasia. I feel like it, and uh, to some extent, After You've Gone, really kind of hammered home that idea that music could be narrative, could be visual, could be very emotive. The character feel of both the music and the cartoons was really great. I personally love the shadow puppet of the wolf that the grandpa puts on Mm -hmm. to try and like dissuade Peter from going out on this really stupid uh, mission. So that that one's definitely got to be my favorite. It's also basically the only name other than Casey at the bat that I had heard of before which you know maybe is is part of it but I think more so is just the fact that it's really one of those standouts especially narratively in this movie for least favorite the Martins and the Coys just feels uncomfortable to me again I don't know if that's just because it's very much not a Disney movie or because it's so kind of absurd I mean, really, like half of the lines are just like, and then we killed more people, which is just a very, very odd concept. I mean, Blue Bayou, Without You, Two Silhouettes, they're all nice. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call them my least favorites because they, I, I, I feel fairly neutral towards them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's, that's my bigger thing. I, I don't have too many things I dislike, just things that I'm, I'm kind of neutral either way on. But I feel like the overall experience in some ways was aided by that, that there are some that you can just kind of ride out where you're not kind of hooked in the whole time, especially in the age of TikTok. You know, we don't necessarily want to be super hooked in for every single segment, maybe. But I I will say when I was watching with my partner, I was just pausing after each one going, so what did you think? So what did you think? And a lot of times it was like, well, that was music and visuals that that did indeed happen which which maybe isn't exactly what disney was hoping people would walk out feeling if you could see it theatrically where you weren't pausing in between each segment 
you might get more of a sense of a, a a flow and an overall vibe but this movie did also feel very blue to me in in like the literal color i felt like was mm-hmm. kind of a recurring motif throughout many of the shorts because there's a there's a blue bonnet we have blue bayou there's there's definitely if it has a central theme other than here's some music but I think I think we can both agree that the Martins and the Coys. I'm not sad about it not being on the 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 disc that I have because I might skip it more often than not. But it is also just it doesn't feel like it fits with any of the others. Like I'm I'm fine calling that the the worst one because it just doesn't even belong in the in the set. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I think I think we covered everything with this one. There's not there's not a ton to cover, but. You know, I think overall, I I really enjoyed watching it both times I watched it. And now that I know what it is, I'll probably, you know, it's one I could see myself just like putting on on a day where I'm like, oh, I haven't watched that in a while. I got an hour and seven minutes. Let me, uh, that's shorter than some episodes of Game of Thrones. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I think I might take the Disney approach. I'll probably show some of the individual shorts to people in the future. I definitely think there's some standouts. Might even watch multiple of the shorts. I'm not sure I'll, uh, necessarily seek out the full run of it too many times in the future with that being said thank you all for listening in hopefully we did a good enough job describing these individual segments for those of you who didn't happen to have the one and only physical copy out there in your state next time on dream with mind and heart we will be discussing another very disney film from this period song of the south For those of you who don't want to or can't watch the film along with us as it is not available on official sources, we will be giving a brief plot synopsis before we dive into the many layers of controversy that are surrounding this movie. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at dreammindheart and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.